everyone. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. And it's truly by the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is laid out in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm sober today. And for that, I'm very grateful. I'm uh, glad to see uh, Barry and uh, Ralph here. They uh, came down with me. Ralph didn't, like he said, he didn't know that we were coming down here to spend a couple of days. He thought we were going to come down here and turn around and go back. So he didn't bring any clothes with him. His wife doesn't even know he's gone. <laughs> Can't get in to tell her. But, uh, and, uh, Buddy Taylor there, he came down from Oklahoma City to be with us, and so I'm grateful for that, Buddy, and thank you all for being here. Uh, Ralph and, uh, Barry and myself remind me of a story that I heard when I was, uh, first got around to Alcoholics Anonymous about these three guys. They were about like us. They were about 17 years old, and they were in the sixth grade. And the uh, the principal wanted them out of the sixth grade bad. So he brought them in the office one day, and he said, I'm going to ask you guys a question. If you get these questions right, you can go into the seventh grade. So he asked Barry the first question. He said, Barry, said, what is it that women have two of that men like to get their hands on? And uh, Barry thought for a long time, and he said, well, they have two hands. Men like to hold hands with women. He said, that's fine. You're in the seventh grade. So he asked Ralph, he said, Ralph, what is it that men have one of that women like to get their hands on? And he thought for a long time, and he said, well, they have one billfold. Women like to get their man's on, hands on a man's billfold. He said, that's good. You're in the seventh grade. So he looked at me, he said, I'm going to ask you a simple question. And I said, God, I hope so. I missed those first two. It's good to be here today. I, I've been sick, for those of you who don't know, I've been sick all night last night, and um, this is the first time I've been sick, sober. Kind of reminds me of the old days when I used to wake up with those hangovers. Bad. Anyhow, uh, I'm going to try to start somewhere here. I don't know where. Uh, there's a story that I used to uh, hear about when I was a kid, and uh, it was a story... Uh, this guy was in jail somewhere and a long time ago, and uh, he'd heard about this fellow who was teaching some principals around, and uh, he didn't. He wanted to know about. Him. In fact, this was his cousin. So he and this guy was in jail. So he sent this guy over there, and he wanted to ask him if he was the one. He said, "You go over and and, and watch this guy, and you ask him if he's the one, or, or should we wait for another?" And he watched him a few days, and uh, he went up and asked him that question. And this guy looked at him, and he said, uh, uh, John sent me over here to ask you this question. He said, well, you go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. You know, tell him that the blind see and the lame walk and the poor in spirit have heard the good news. And so that's all I can do here today is to tell you what I've seen and what I've heard through my experience in my life. And when I was uh, young, we were... Uh, I was born and raised over here at Salisaw, Oklahoma, which is about 20 miles on the other side of the Arkansas line. And my people were Indian and Irish. The Irish made the whiskey and the Indians drank it, and that's what I'm doing here, I think. <laughs> Indians can't drink, period. They just can't do it. Something missing in them. But uh, over there, we had all had a 160-acre allotment, and, and uh, my dad had one, and my mom had one, and my 
aunt and uncles had one, my grandpa and grandma had one, and we're all pretty close. And we had a real close family unit in those days. Well, then this was in the late 30s that I, I was born in 1939. But uh, our people couldn't make it there anymore. They couldn't make it on the farm. And I, I kind of think this happened to most all of our society in those days. Some of you uh, older guys and gals will remember this. So our people couldn't make it on in the farm, so they all left. And they went to California, most of them, or at least my people did. Well, not knowing what we really did, we broke up the family unit. You know, it was real safe and secure in that area. And then we all left and went our different directions, and I think our society's been going different directions ever since. But that's what happened to us. And my people went out to California, and they couldn't, my dad couldn't make it out there, so we came back to Tulsa. And uh, <clears throat> there was my dad and my, my mother and uh, five children, and he wasn't equipped to handle that. My dad was a farmer, and I, I can imagine him today how I would feel, and I had to reason this out because later on I learned to hate my dad, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But uh, I would be very scared to death today to have five children and try to fit into our society coming from the farm. And my dad had to be scared, had to be real scared and very apprehensive and wondering what he was going to do with his, with his family. <clears throat> my dad got a job as a as a iceman. He worked six days a week, and... Uh, and on Saturday, he would come home, <clears throat> and uh, he'd buy him a half a pint of whiskey or a pint of whiskey, and he would drink it, and my mother would be very upset with my dad. Now, I know today that my dad had an obsession to drink, and my mother had an obsession to see that he didn't drink. You see, So that caused problems, lots of problems. And my dad's drinking progressed, and uh, her bitching and griping at him progressed, and it was real ugly around my house when I was a kid. My dad uh, became a very verbal, verbally abusive person. He became physically abusive to my mother and us kids. And a number of times when I was seven or eight or nine years old, I, he would tell us that he was going to take my mom out and kill her. And they would be gone all day and sometimes all night. And I'm sitting at home wondering, is he going to do that? Did he did that? So alcoholism is a family illness. It affects the whole family. And his drinking and her problems, they, they affected me emotionally, and I grew up in that. And uh, his drinking got so bad and his uh, 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 physical abusiveness got so bad, she had to have him arrested, and she had him committed to Eastern State Hospital in Oklahoma to alcohol and to, to the insane ward. And he was to be up there for nearly three years and seven months and 13 days, as a matter of fact. And during that time, I learned to hate my dad for his drinking. And many, many times, I used to hitchhike up the old 66 highway and go up there and visit with him. And uh, I can uh, get off there at the highway and walk about three miles up to the hospital. And while I'd be walking up there, I'd be taking him a couple of dollars and a carton of cigarettes or something. And I would think, he's up here because he's been, because he drinks. And he drinks too much. And I'll never be like him. I'll never, ever be like him. And I hate him for this and I'd go up there and visit with him and then uh, I'd come back home and and uh, people would ask me around the school where my dad was and I began to lie about and deny my, my family I told them that my dad was in California that he you know I couldn't I couldn't bear to tell him that he was up there well somewhere along in there uh, I don't know exactly when it was eight or nine years old my mother was real uh, 
strong to go to church. She believed in God, and she went to church regularly all of her life. Very strong lady in that area. And she took me to church a lot. And uh, somewhere along in there, I made a decision that if I ever got big enough that they couldn't catch me anymore, I wasn't going. And that just came up one day. And I said, I don't need God, nothing, or nobody. And that was eight or nine years old, and I lived my life that way until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't need God, nothing, or nobody. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen because I made it that way. Self-reliance. Totally self-reliance. I didn't rely upon anyone. Because by this time I had been hurt so badly and emotionally damaged so badly that I didn't feel that I could trust anyone. I, I'm, I know that now. I didn't know that then. And that's the way it was with me. So I lived my life that way. And I got into an awful lot of trouble. I got into an awful lot of trouble. I began to go to jail when I was young for various and sundry offenses. Went to prison. Uh, I was in Phoenix here about a month ago. This lady had invited me out there from who used to be in our group in Tulsa. And I'd forgotten when I was 15 years old. She asked me, have you ever been to Phoenix before? And I had to remember, yes, I have been to Phoenix before. The first time I had remembered this in all these years, but I had I was brought to, to Phoenix from a from a prison when I was 15, and they had me in chains, and uh, they put me on a bus and told me to never come back to Arizona again as long as I live. <laughs> and there I was there. I'm sure glad to leave. But some of those kind of things that keep coming back in my life today, I keep remembering things. I guess I just blotted an awful lot of things out that I didn't want to remember. But, uh, I, I, like I said, I got into an awful lot of trouble. And uh, when I was about 17 years old, I went into the Army. And uh, I stayed in there, and I met, met a fellow by the name of George Gibbs. He's a black man from over in Tulsa, and he later on becomes a significant part of my AA story. But George and I drank together and had a lot of fun together, and I got in jail a couple times in Mexico as a result of George and I's action. But anyhow, things went on. I got out of the army and I got and I decided I would get married. And I dated this little lady and uh, uh, she had two children, two boys, and uh, we dated and drank a lot and partied a lot. And then we got married. And after about two or three months into our marriage, she she decided that we shouldn't drink anymore. She decided that. And uh, I thought maybe it'd be a bit, be a good idea. So we didn't drink for a while, or at least I didn't drink for a while. And I set about to try to become successful because money was a very important part of my life at that time. And I thought it would give me security. And I worked real, real hard trying to become successful. There were some guys who uh, uh, I worked with who seemed to be successful the way that I wanted to be. And they would hang around a bar. And I'd go down to the bar after work and have a few drinks with them. And, and we would talk. I, I can identify with Bill so much in his story where... He chattered in millions and talked in thousands. Didn't have any money, but they talked a lot about it, and that's the way I, way I did. And I, I started getting home later and later, and my wife became madder and madder, just like my mother did. And uh, I, I became verbally abusive to my wife. Later on, I became physically abusive to my wife, just like my dad did. The thing that I said I would never do, and that bothered me real badly. And I tried not to be that way. I tried not to be that way and I couldn't not be that way and the result of that that Rose and I was married and divorced four times 
during our marriage. It was really <laughs> terrible. Uh, I remember the last time uh, we we got divorced, I, I, and each time I would say to myself, well, the hell with her, I don't need nothing or nobody, including her, and I'm going to make it on my own. And the last time I went out and I said, the hell with her, I don't need her. And uh, I went out, and about three months later, I was sitting in the bar one night thinking. Now, you know, you guys know, and gals, when you're drinking, either think or drink, but don't get the two of them mixed up. <clears throat> but I was there drinking one night, and I got to thinking. Old Rose hasn't seen me in about three months. And I know she's lonesome. I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, really? <laughs> so I decided that I would go over to her house, or my house, and visit. So I went over there, and I knocked on the door, and she peeked out the door, well... Well, what I did was I broke in, okay? Just cut right down to it. And I knew she'd be lonesome and be glad to see me. But there's an old boy in my recliner, in my house, watching television with my wife. And I'm making payments on all this stuff. So what are you going to do? You're going to whip him, right? Well, I jumped on that old boy, and he threw me out in the yard and beat me uh, bad. And, uh, and you talk about the desire to kill and the anger and resentment that I had over that. It was, it was absolutely terrible. You know, if I even get mad today, I, I get physically sick. I cannot stand to be mad. But I was viciously mad as a result of this. And my mind raced uncontrollably, like Bill said his did. And I just, it was just awful. It was a very sick time in my life. And uh, when... Later, I said, well, the hell with her. I don't need her, nothing or nobody, and I'm going to make it on my own. Don't let this divorce go through. And I did. And I got to thinking, well, now I need, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to drink. I know that. And I'm going to find me a woman that drinks. Now, see, I'm starting to think real good now. <laughs> I'm going to find me a woman that drinks because women that do not drink are mean and ugly. <laughs> so I looked over the bars all over Tulsa, some of the real fine places. And uh, I met this lady, Phyllis, and uh, we were introduced one night. And uh, she said, you know, Joe, you look like my third husband. And I said, well, my God, how many of you had? And she said, two. <laughs> That's a pretty good line, you know. And I like that. And I've been watching Phyllis, and she'd come into the bar at 5 o'clock, and she would drink until we closed, and we'd go over to a, a club and stay there till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And, and I liked that, because that's what I wanted. So we started dating, and we dated for four or five months, and we got married. And after about three months into our marriage, she decided that it would be a good idea that we didn't drink. And her daughter came to live with us, and I, and I thought it would probably be a good idea, too. Now, this is really the first time that I knew, really knew, that I couldn't quit. Because after about 30 days into this not-quitting period, my head got real tight, and, and my felt like somebody had my head in the vice, and I couldn't sleep, and I, I was restless and irritable and discontented and just generally angry, and I just couldn't stand it. So about after, after about 30 days, I went down by the liquor store and bought me a pint of whiskey and drank most of it. 
old head cleared up, my neck got loose, and I started thinking good again. And I said, boy, this is crazy of me not to, to ever think I could quit drinking or even want to quit drinking. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I didn't. And the result of, my, with my attitudes that I had, and the result of that was that uh, Phyllis and I had uh, three divorces. And when we got married, she'd just come out of a real nasty divorce, and I had come out of mine, and she had a list of, I had a list of things about this long that I wasn't going to let her do. And she had a list of things about this long that she wasn't going to let me do. So we were trying to enforce our list upon each other. And our marriage was bad. It was already, I was already sick and I really didn't know it. I was really very badly sick. And so was she. So we had a very sick time. And uh, each time I would leave, I'd say to the hell with her, I don't need nothing or nobody. And the last time I did, and I stayed gone. And I said, I'm going to drink when I want to drink, as often as I want to drink, and I don't care who knows it. And I did exactly that. And I drank a lot of whiskey from, a lot of whiskey. And uh, my last night of drinking was a typical, typical night. Uh, I woke up that morning. I had me four or five drinks and two or three cigarettes, and I passed out again. I think uh, Rose last night referred to it going back to sleep. Uh, I went back to sleep, and um, in the early afternoon, I'd wake up again and have four or five drinks and two or three cigarettes and go back to sleep. And that evening, about 5.30 or 6, I got up and had four or five drinks and two or three cigarettes, and I went about my rounds, the bars that I went to. And I ended up in a little place in West Tulsa where I had was mostly raised, and it's a place called the Misty Dawn. Uh, you know, I can almost smell the Misty Dawn now. And uh, this was a bad place because these people over there who owned that bar who, who were wanting to kill me, and about two weeks prior to that, I had to be escorted out of there by some friends of mine at gunpoint because of these people who were going to kill me. And this Saturday night, I'm back over there. Now, I don't know what kind of insanity that is, but it's some sort of insanity. And uh, But I was sitting on, the, on that bar stool about midnight, and I'd been drinking that day, like I told you, and all that evening. And I was as, I think, as sober as I am right now. That alcohol just would not do it anymore, and it hadn't done it for a long, long time. <clears throat> I uh, got out of, the, come out of the bar stool and went out and got in my car and laid down a little bit and uh, got in my car and drove back to my little apartment that I lived in. And I had a little nice little one-bedroom apartment. And I had a brand-new bed bedroom suit in the back and two lamps and all that stuff. But I, didn't, I just never did have time to get any sheets or anything. You know, I was just too busy for that. So I slept on the couch. And uh, the couch was near the, near the television and the radio, and I, I let those play. See, I didn't know then like I know now that I was full of fear. I was absolutely scared to death. And that's why I slept on the couch, so I could play the television and radio and listen to some people. Because by this time, everybody had gone out of my life. Everybody. I didn't have a soul that I could call. And I lay there that morning, and I began to think about my life and all the situations that I had been involved in and all the hurt that I'd caused other people and, and a lot of things that I've told you and many, many, many other things that I haven't told you. And I wanted my life to be different, and I didn't know how to, for it to be different. 
but somehow that morning I knew that if my life was going to be different that God was going to have to be involved in it. I just knew that. So I got on my knees beside that couch and I asked God if he would find, help me to find some way to get my life straightened out. And I knew that I was going to have to not drink and I knew that I couldn't not drink. And I asked God to help me to find a way to not drink and to get my life straightened out. And I made a deal. If Martha's here, I don't know. You can make a deal, I guess. I made a deal with God that morning. And I said, if you'll do that for me, I'll do anything I can for you from this day forward. And I made a deal. And to my knowledge, I haven't went back on that deal since that morning. And a little bit later on, I got to remembering this friend of mine who, who he, he and I had been in the service together, George, and I mentioned to him a while ago. And I called George, and he told me four or five years prior to this that he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called him that morning. I said, George, are you still a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? And he said, yes, that he was. And I said, well, I can't quit drinking, and I need some help bad. So George came over to my house, and he stayed with me for three days. Just stayed with me for three days. Just hanging around with me for three days. I was very, very sick. I weighed about 135, 40 pounds. And I eat occasionally because I know you're supposed to eat something occasionally, and I'd eat a bologna sandwich once in a while. And that's the way I lived in my life and the way I drank. And uh, George came over there, and he was a janitor, a nighttime janitor, and he'd take me out with him for a couple, three hours at night and then bring me back to the apartment. He just stayed with me. You know, in the forward to the third edition of this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that in spite of the great increase in size and span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal. Every day recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. And that's what George did for me. And you see, I've had the very best that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer, because that is the very best. In our area, sometimes uh, some people think that if you just give a guy a ride to a treatment facility, you're doing a 12-step call. That's a cab ride. A 12-step call, working with someone, is sitting down eyeball to eyeball, sharing experience, strength, and hope, and just being with them. That's the best that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. And see, treatment facilities can't sell that. You can't buy it. See, it's given for free and for fun, and that's what George did for me. And he shared with me, and he stayed with me. And he took me to my very first AA meeting <clears throat> on that Tuesday night. And that was on November the 3rd, 1973, and I haven't had a drink since that Sunday morning, by the grace of God. Now, here's some strange things starts happening. Sunday morning, I'm on my knees asking God for help, and Tuesday night, I've got my help, and Tuesday night, I come to my very first AA meeting. And you know what goes through my head? What's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this with people like you? <laughs> Three days sober, my old self-reliant attitude begins to come back. And I think I've made a mistake. I, I don't really belong here. I shouldn't be here. See, if I have any problems today, it's the very same one. That I don't need God and I don't need you people. If I get to thinking that way, I'm in bad shape. And that happened with me after three days of sobriety. Three days of not drinking. And they talked about God that night. 
and as I told you, I mentioned that I, I said if I ever got big enough they couldn't catch me, I wouldn't go anymore. And I didn't. See, here I am three days sober, and I said I don't need God, nothing, or nobody again. But I had to rethink that and relive that and to remember that Sunday morning. And I've had to do that many, many times since I've been sober this time. After a while, George said to me, and we talked about this God thing. I said, uh, George, this God idea really bothers me. He said, well, Joe, you, when you uh, quit going to church eight or nine years old, that's all the understanding you have, and here you are 33 years old now, and you still have the understanding of an eight- or nine-year-old boy. And that's the truth. He said, now, you can't make God, but if you could, what would you like God to be? He said, you go home tonight. And you make up a God, in your, as you can understand in your own mind, what you would like it to be. And I went home that night and I thought about it, what I would like God to be. And I'm not going to tell you what I would like God to be. That's your own deal. But I made up one for me, and then I told George about it. He said, well, that's good. You can start from there. And that was the beginning for me. See, I didn't know you could do that. I always thought you had to believe as they believed. You see? I always thought you, if I, if I didn't believe the way those other people believed, then I was doing it wrong. And one of the greatest things that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer me, anyhow, is the God of my understanding, as I would like it to be. And therefore, I don't have to take other people's opinions. Now, today, I can take other people's opinions about their God, and I can accept them, and I can look at them. But up to this time, my mind would just slam shut against that. So that opened my mind. And that's the same thing happened to Bill Wilson, by the way. Ebby told him, why don't you choose your own God? Well, George did that for me, too. Great thing, great thing. And that turned me loose and turned me around. So I went to an awful lot of meetings. I went down to a, a, a conference down at Apache, Oklahoma, which is down by Lawton. Now, you can't get to Apache, Oklahoma from here. It can't be done. Or from Tulsa. Neither Indian guide in the search warrant to get down there. <laughs> but there was about 750 people from all over the, that area and Texas and Arkansas and Canada and wherever at, at Apache, Oklahoma. And I met a lady there. Her name was Alabama Carruthers, and some of you may know Alabama. I also met Franklin Williams there, who later became my sponsor. And uh, But Alabama and George and I were sitting in the lobby of this hotel, old hotel <clears throat> and it was about four or five o'clock in the morning and George finally fell over asleep in her lap and I liked Alabama I loved Alabama she was so vibrant and so full of life and so exciting about Alcoholics Anonymous and I just loved her and I loved to be around her and I started to share with Alabama how I had been thinking see this was in uh, sept uh, February and I've been sober since November and I don't believe I'd slept one night, one night that whole time. I would lay awake at night and my mind would race uncontrollably. And I would relive my life over and over and over again. I'd get through it and turn right around and redo it. My mind over and over and over and over. See, in our book it says that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. And that was what, I know that today, but I didn't know that then. And I told Alabama about that. And she said, well, Joe, you're just full of resentments. And I said, well, what is a resentment? And she said a resentment are old angers and old hurts that are refelt and rethought of over and over again. And all that 
anger that you intended to use upon other people, you're turning it inwardly and you're using it upon yourself. And you're hurting yourself with that. You're doing it to yourself. And see, all this time I thought it was them doing it to me. But it's not them, it's me. I did it to myself. And I said, well, what is the solution for that? Is there a solution for that? And she said, yes, there is. And she pointed me to this book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said on page 552 of that book is a story of about a lady from called Freedom from Bondage. And in it, she prayed for these people. She said that she prayed for these people for two weeks, asking God to give to them the things she wanted for herself, such as peace of mind and serenity. And I went home and I thought, well, I'm not doing anything anyhow, laying here thinking. So I started praying for these people. And my list got longer and longer and longer and longer. And I prayed nightly for these people. Uh, more than two weeks, I prayed. And one day I was at the corner of 31st and Lewis in Tulsa, the beautiful area of Tulsa, old homes, fine grounds, beautiful flowers. And I got stuck in this stoplight. And I looked up this real pretty house that's sitting over there and a bunch of beautiful green grass and uh, the tulips were blooming and the little squirrels were jumping around in the trees. And the birds were chippering around and I said, my God, isn't that beautiful? I said, how long has it been since I've seen those things? And you know, I couldn't remember. I could not remember. In our book, it talks about being cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. And you know, I know what that means. All my life, I had never seen those things. I believe until that morning. And they were just beautiful. All this anger and all this resentment that I've been carrying around all my life was gone. And then I was able to see the pretty things in this world. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has started doing for me, that action that I took. And from then on until this day, I want everything that this program has to offer me meaning that I will work the steps, and I set about working those steps I could. You know, for a long, long time, I worked the steps off of the wall, you know. And Franklin said, don't work the steps off of the wall. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous took the steps out of this book, and we put them on the wall. But the instructions as to how to work the steps we left in the book. So Franklin got me into the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started taking my steps out of the book called Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 and 12. And I and I'd worked real hard at it. I know I'd, I did a fourth step as best I could. And I did a fifth step and I felt good about that. I started around asking God to take away these defects of character that I had and I make amends to others. I think Rose mentioned last night about serenity. I didn't know what serenity was. But I do know what serenity is now. Serenity is peace of mind and peace of soul. The result of that is serenity. See, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the, I was the finished product of the brewer's art, I like to say. I had gangrene of the mind and malnutrition of the mind and gangrene of the soul. That pretty much describes me. That's the way I felt. I was a very angry, angry, hateful person. You know, full of fear and if you'd asked me in those days was I afraid of anything I'd jump right in your face and try to kill you that's the way I was and today I can't I cannot get angry it, it makes me sick because uh, if I get angry I just get 
it's like I've got a hangover of some sort. I can't stand it. And uh, I like the serenity. I really do. But those are the results of the steps. And I think today that that's what the steps are to, about for me, is to give me some peace of mind and a peace of soul. And then I can have serenity. And I like that idea. So I set about doing that. And I worked the steps as best I could. Many people have helped me in my life throughout Alcoholics Anonymous. And one day I was at the uh, at a conference down in, in Oklahoma, and I met Charlie and Joe. And most of you, uh, a lot of you know about Charlie and Joe. If you haven't, well, you should know. I'm sure Richard's got some tapes over there if you don't know. I suggest you get them. But I met those guys, and we were in my hotel room, and they talked, and and we asked them questions about the book, and... Uh, Every time we would meet someplace, they would talk about the book, and we'd ask them questions, and the room got more full and more full, and I just loved those those days. We don't have those days much anymore, but I just loved those days. This before they got into the, onto the circuit, you know. <laughs> a few months later, we were at Shangri-La, and uh, Joe McQueeny had brought a film over there to Shangri-La. And uh, one that, that afternoon, I decided I would go outside for a walk. And as I was going down the hall, I looked in, and Joe was setting up this projector in this film. And I said, well, I think I'll go in there and see what this is about. So I made a left-hand turn and went in and watched the film, and it changed my life again. And then because the name of the film was called Alcoholism, a Disease or Disgrace. And up till this day, up till that day, I had been treating this thing as if it was a moral issue. See, my dad, I knew, was a no-good, rotten SOB. And that's the way I felt when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt like I was a no-good, rotten SOB. You know, I'd been treating this thing, alcoholism, this illness, alcoholism, as a moral issue rather than an illness. And if I have any message this morning, it's that. This is not a moral issue. This is a... Uh, physical allergy and a mental obsession it's an illness and I have to look at it that way and uh, he basically went through the doctor's opinion in this book and the doctor's opinion has become one of the greatest pieces of information that I've ever read I recommend it highly talked about the physical allergy the abnormal reaction that most al- most people who drink don't have that only only alcoholics have that abnormal reaction they crave more after they drink, they crave more and they will have more. Sets up a craving beyond their mental control. And that explains many things to me which I didn't have any, any answer for. That explains many times why I would come in late at night and my fellows would say, where you been? And start raising cane with me and I would be physically and verbally abusive to her. And the next morning I would wake up and I'd be full of guilt, shame and remorse for the things that I'd said the night before. And I tell myself, I'm never going to do this anymore. I will not be this way anymore. I'm going to quit drinking today. In fact, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to come home this evening and I'm going to get Phyllis and Gail and we're going to go to the movie or out to dinner and I'm going to make up to them and I'm going to do right. And I meant to do that. I promised them I would do that. I promised myself I would do that. And I meant to do that. But about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I say, well, I feel so bad, I think I'll go down by the bar and just have a couple of drinks, and then I'm going to go home. And I meant to do that. 
So I'd go down to the bar and I'd have me two or three drinks and this craving would set up beyond my mental control. And the next thing I know, it's midnight, one or two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning or the next day or the next week. That's the way I drank. You know, and this answers many things which I didn't have any, any questions, any answers for. That I was physically allergic to alcohol. And I was also mentally obsessed to drink it. And they explained that an obsession was an idea that overpowers all other ideas. Very, very strong. As long as I had an obsession to drink, I stayed drunk. Today I have an obsession to stay sober. And I stay sober. It's changed from one obsession to the other with the help of God in this program. That's what's happened to me. But the doctor's opinion is, is a, one of the best pieces of information I've ever known. It explained a lot of things about my dad. See, I hated my dad. I hated him. He was a no-good, rotten SOB. And if I have the illness of alcoholism, then he had the illness of alcoholism. And if I could forgive me, I could forgive him, and I have. Because, it has to, because I have peace of mind about that today. And that's what the doctor's opinion has done for me. <clears throat> I don't know what time it is here. Phyllis, uh, after about, I say so, over about two and a half years, and Phyllis and I got back together, and we'd been dating this two and a half years, and uh, uh, one night we were in an AA meeting, Saturday night. We had this, I had this little business, and uh, I was going to give her this business and leave. I was going to leave her again. You know, This time I was going to leave sober. I couldn't leave before and stay gone because I always left trying to take everything with me. But this time I was going to leave and give it all to her. And I had the cashier's check in my pocket from this little business, and we went to meeting that night, and then the next morning my plan was to give her that check and leave. Well, this particular Saturday night uh, we went to this meeting, and they gave out these desire-to-stay-sober chips, and Phyllis got up and got a desire-to-stay-sober chip. Now, I was really mad about this. I'm leaving in the morning. Well, how are you going to leave a woman that just got her desire to say sober chip? You can't. I can't. And that's been over 15 years ago, and she hasn't had a drink since that time. And we have traveled this road of Alcoholics Anonymous together. We've been involved in the service structures and done all the things you can do, and today she's our alternate state chairman. And she's very active in the service structure, and she's doing a real good job, and our lives have gotten real good, and we have something in common today, and that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And we work at it, and we live at it. We have our meditation together in our home, and it's been, it's been lovely. Now, I'm not saying that it was been all lovely. Uh, in the beginning, it was really ugly, sober. But we've worked all those lists out today, and we're at peace with ourselves, and we're at peace with each other. And most days we have today are good. Most of them are good. My little little daughter, who grew up in watching us two drink, uh, today she's in a 12-step program. It's not Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's a 12-step program. And she's 33 years old now, and she's working that program very well. So we have something to talk about. And we've gotten back together. She used to hate us. She couldn't wait to get married to get away from us. And I don't blame her. But today we're getting we're back together. We have uh, three three grandchildren, and they're just lovely. And they've never one of them seen me drunk, ever. 
And I thank God for that. I hope they never do. So things are good. Things are good. You know, there's another story that I heard when I was going way back. I didn't understand it until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, this same guy was running around teaching these principles that we've been talking about this weekend. And uh, he said to us the things that he did that we could do also. That's something. And these two alcoholics that uh, heard him say that, they remembered they had a friend who was very bad sick back home, so they went and got him and brought him to the meeting the next night. And the, the meeting was full. They couldn't get him in there. So they they had to be alcoholics, I think, because they went up on the roof and they chopped a hole in the roof. And they let this guy down in there. And this guy looked up at them and he said, you know, it's by your faith that this man is healed. By the faith of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been healed. See, they brought me the message by their faith. You know, that's something. Later on in the story, this guy was in a little town called Cernan. And he was chairing the meeting that night. And he heard a story about a guy who they had locked up in a cave on the side of the hill and chained up. And he wanted to go up there and talk to him. They said, no, no, I wouldn't go up there and talk to him. So that man is crazy. He's got lots of character defects. You know. And he said when he drinks, he really gets crazy. This is what I, I put this into the story. And he said, well, what's his name? He said, well, his name is Legions because he is many. See, many character defects. So he went up there and talked to this guy, and he turned him loose. He took his chains away from him and turned him loose. And this guy, and, uh, and the way the story goes up to this point, these, every time this guy had helped anybody, he'd ask them to come with him and go with him and do what he did. And the old Legions looked at him, and he said, well, can I go with you and do what you do? And he said, no, Legions. He said, what I want you to do is to stay here and tell people what happened to you. Thank you very much.